Welcome to Wilderness Time. I'm Stephanie Spellers, and along with my co-host Dwight Shiley, we're glad to have you. In this digital series, we explore the challenge of following Jesus and leading His church in a season of disruption, displacement, and possibility. So as we begin today, please join us for an opening word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the ways in which you are present even amidst suffering in our lives and even in the face of death. Lord Jesus, you promise to free us from all that separates us from God's love. We pray that your spirit may guide our conversations and all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So each session of Wilderness Time, we try to pick out some adaptive challenge and really wrestle with it. A challenge that's especially poignant for churches today in the midst of pandemic and um, surrounded by social change and uprising. Today's topic is in the face of death, acknowledging that we all shudder in the face of death and loss. So how might we lean into the mystery of Christian faith and discover where God is moving, even when it looks like the end. Dwight, you know Rolf really well, so feel free to introduce him. There we go, thanks. <laughs> um, it's my pleasure to welcome to Wilderness Time uh, my colleague, Dr. Rolf Jacobson. He's professor of Old Testament and the Alvin Rognes Chair in Scripture, Theology, and Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. So Rolf, uh, welcome to this webinar and, and this series. And uh, we're going to begin as we do with a uh, passage of Scripture. You've chosen a reading from 1 Corinthians to ground our reflections today. And I wonder if you could read that text for us as we begin. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Thanks, Rolf. So um, I'm curious, why, why did you choose this text? What does it have to do with our current experiences of disruption, displacement, and loss? I chose this text um, because of the first phrase in it, which um, 
in both the NIV and in the NRSV, I think is mistranslated. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing and to those of us who are being saved. It is the power of God. That, that, that very first phrase, the message of the cross or the message about the cross, uh, in Greek, it's just the word of the cross. And that the cross itself speaks the word to us. It's not just something we say about the cross or Paul says about the cross, but what the cross itself proclaims. And that is that we cannot know God through our ways of knowing. Uh, Paul goes on to say, um, you know, where is the philosopher of this age? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. That, um, I think it's um, in this moment, uh, that's really just important to realize, uh, especially in American Christianity, um, a lot of American Christianity has turned the cross simply into the moment of atonement. And that's not untrue, but the cross is not just one moment of atonement in which some spiritual equation was solved by God, uh, whether you like Anselm or uh, I'm, I'm particularly to uh, Christus Victor myself, but the, the cross is actually, according to Paul, the way that God continues to show up. If it is true, and it is, that God's most potent moment of presence and power on earth was the death of God on the cross, the worst thing imaginable. But that's actually the power of God, Paul says. That's the pattern for how we can expect God to show up. We can expect God to show up in our suffering, even in the death of loved ones, even in our own death one day, that that's where God's redeeming and transformative power is most promised by God to be present. Of course, it's not the only place, but suffering and death, according to the cross. That's why I picked it. Uh, it, it feels such an appropriate moment for the church to, to rethink and learn that old way of doing theology. It makes me wonder, Rolf, um, I just, first of all, I just kind of want to take in what you just said. Like you've, you've done the theology of the cross in about two minutes. <laughs> um, and all of that makes me wonder about how is it exactly that God uses these disruptions, this loss? Um, what is it that, that happens in us that, that makes it almost useful to God? Say the last part of the question again, because it threw me for a loop. I was yeah, thinking about the first yeah. part of the question. Well, um, yeah, and I think that idea that, that somehow these experiences that we, where we feel such disruption and loss, that God is actually seeing, ah, maybe, like, there's a moment that I can use. Like, I can work with these people now. <laughs> What's yeah. Well, I mean, my, uh, you know, there, there's a lot written about the theology of the cross, but it's interesting that it's almost never summarized what it is. So I started working on that recently. And, um, you know, Paul talks about it here. This is the first place. And then it gets picked up many other places. And most recently, you know, Douglas John Hall, 
uh, our colleague Andrew Root has written extensively about the theology of the cross and practical ministry. And he especially says, it's just a way of understanding how God acts in the world. That God is found in places where God should not be found. Which means that God, the, the minister starts to understand that God will be found in places where God should not be found, transforming the world. And that's what makes God, God. So, the, I mean, the good news for our own suffering is that God will be found in our lives and in people where God should not be found. Mm. And you just think about the moment that we're in, how God has entered into the dual pandemics in our society of um, disease and racism and state. Uh, it's not right to say state-sponsored violence, but it is right to say state-condoned, mm -hmm. which is slightly different um, violence. And look at the transformations that are happening right now in people, in places, in institutions. Mm. So Rolf, one of the things that we've talked about in this series is how the pandemic is exposing one of the, um, I think the narratives in our society or in our, our world, or maybe the, as Paul would say, we talk about the, you know, the, the philosophers of this age, this idea that technology, you know, technological progress can sort of always overcome you know, nature in some way or sort of secure a certain kind of immortality for us. And we're seeing that, you know, here's this pandemic that nobody has a fix for. There's no fix for it. And it's humbling. And the reality of death is um, is present now in a way that, you know, you go to the grocery store and you could risk your life, right? Anything you do, right? Um, so you, I want to just invite you to talk a little bit about your experience um, of suffering in, in your life, you have a, a, a unique narrative of um, what happened in your life early on and then how God sort of showed up in that and, and how that's shaped who you are and your understanding of God's presence in the cross and particularly facing death. Yeah, uh, um, sure. So um, I, 40 years ago this year, I was 15, uh, living a normal sort of teenage life wasn't great, wasn't terrible. You know what I mean? I can't, uh, some, of my, uh, some of my friends with stories like mine say, and, that, and that's how my perfect life was wrecked. I didn't have a perfect life at all. Um, but uh, basically um, one Sunday, November 16th, 1980, I thought there was something wrong with my leg, but it wasn't a big deal. And three days later I had uh, my first amputation for cancer. Um, Long story short, over the next three years, I, uh, I was uh, the first person known to get the, the disease twice, once in each leg. It didn't spread from one leg to the other. I got it twice. So that leg was amputated too. And uh, I tell the story in many different ways. And um, there's a couple moments as I look back on it uh, that really stand out. Uh, one moment, the best moment of the worst, the best a moment of the worst time of my life 
was when I was staying uh, in what later is the home for children at Mayo Clinic that had cancer and families could stay. And it was an old apartment building that had been bought by uh, a nonprofit. And uh, a friend of my dad came down and against my will, I mean, you know, you know how it is when you're sick and I was sick, my body was full of cancer. Uh, and, but dragged me out against my will uh, to a restaurant and an experience uh, and put on a show when the way he ordered, and it's a long story that would take the whole uh, podcast uh, here. Uh, but that moment of that meal, that celebratory uh, uh, moment of experiencing God's abundance in an incredible meal, uh, I look back on and it's the, it's the best moment of light in those darkest, um, darkest months. And that literally was because it was November, you know, uh, so it was dark nights in my part of the world. But, um, and so the feast, right, the, Bi the Bible commands us to feast. If you, if you want to, uh, the end of Deuteronomy 14, look that text up because it says you must feast, uh, uh, it, it, it says, take your tithes and throw a party and invite the poor and invite the priests even. So, yeah, that's good news, right? Because um, they don't have anything to feast on on their own in the Bible because they don't have any property. And God says, you must feast so that you may know who I am. Um, and that's true. So that moment, you know, terrible moment, good moment in the midst of it, but the experience of abundance, even in the midst of literally having um, my body um, removed, parts of my, parts of my humanity removed, as I would say. And then, uh, and then later on, though, at the end of my long journey, uh, uh, four years later, after I'd been cancer-free for three years, being told, now our statistics suggest that you're going to live. And that moment was scary of thinking now I have to live and um, thinking, oh, what's life going to be like? I, I, I didn't know I was going to live, you know what I mean? And what am I going to do? Will I find somebody to marry? Will I, uh, will the world be hospitable to somebody with no legs? This was the eighties, you know, early eighties. Life has gotten a lot better for people in, in wheelchairs uh, consistently in our culture. Anyway, and that moment too, I look back and a friend of, who was with me at the time um, said uh, important words to me, but the most important of which is um, now you have no excuses. So, which was a word of uh, admonition and call uh, from her at that moment, that day. Now you have no excuses. Yes, that's what she said. And you know, um, her point was, sure, look at you, look at you, sure. You got lots of things you could use as an excuse and you're not gonna um, because God's redemptive, transformative, sustaining power finds us in our suffering and draws us through to new creation. And uh, so all of you who have ever gone to a hospital room where you didn't want to go, something terrible had happened, something awful was happening in there, right? And you thought, what am I going to say? How am I going to bring God to these people? And then, of course, the experience over and over again, right, is they minister to us, right? You've all, you've all experienced that. Well, that's because the theology of the cross, God has promised, God is ahead of us. 
God has, is already showing up in their suffering. And our incredible privilege as ministers is to experience those holy moments with people and to name them as holy. That the presence of holiness is actually where God should not be found. Mm. That's already a question that's been coming up in the chat. So even before we get to the Q&A, I kind of want to lift that up. This idea that there are places or situations where God should not be or should be. I feel like you're you're speaking to that. What does it mean that we kind of decide for ourselves sometimes, well, this is where God should be? Um, and what is it? Is that some of the foolishness maybe that... Yeah. that talking about here too, right? It's like, oh, you thought that's where God is working. No, God's over here. (laughs) Well, it's the wisdom of the world. Yeah. Um, If you haven't seen it ever, one of the earliest pieces of anti-Christian graffiti, and you can look this up, is uh, in the Roman catacombs, and it's entitled Alex Aminos. So Alex, A-M-E-N-O-S, Alex Aminos worships his God. And it's a picture of a, it's a stick figure of a person worshiping an, uh, an ass, a donkey on a cross. That's what the Roman world thought of the Christian message. You are so stupid that you think, I don't know if you've ever seen that great bit of graffiti, but it's the great, um, when I was in seminary, Luther Seminary in the 1980s, we would get at least one sermon a year that would talk about that piece of art because it's the theology of the cross, right? Um, Yeah, that's where God is found. That's a a crucified criminal tortured to death, shamed to death, right? The cross was a way to shame you Mm -hmm. as you were slowly tortured. No, that's actually where God is. I mean, right? uh, And so the, the human way of thinking, the wisdom of the world is, well, God... Everything happens for reason, we say, which is not true, but right, my, my friend Kate Bowler's book, Everything Happens for Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved, she writes about her journey with cancer. Um, everything, the, the theologian Ken Jones from uh, a college in Iowa, I just slipped my mind, uh, Grandview, um, says that the world thinks in terms of cause and effect. Things happen for a reason. Therefore, if somebody's blessed, I'm sorry, if somebody's fortunate in life, we think they've been blessed by God implied. And if somebody's suffering, John 9, we could have used that text. The disciples say, here's a man born blind. The assumption is somebody sinned to cause it, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, uh, Again, the Bible translation is wrong. Jesus says simply, no one sinned. So he says, no one sinned. And the translation adds that he was born blind. It's just neither this man or his parents sinned, it says, period. So we think in terms of cause and effect, and um, that's how the world works. It's how science works, especially science, right? You can repeat cause and effect. And once I can control it and repeat it over and over again, not, then I have scientific fact. And um, that's how we're made to think. And there's so much value, actually. There's so much economic value in that way of thinking. And that's not to be despised at all. But 
It's not how finally God through the gospel works. God will, God has promised to show up where we can't imagine a cause and effect that would signal God's presence. Yeah. So Ralph, I'm curious, um, how does this kind of theology um, steer clear of a sort of justification for suffering or saying that somehow suffering is, is all redemptive in a way that would, um, that would miss the protest against suffering and oppression that is also embedded in the cross? Can you speak to that for a bit? Good question. Yes, the number one criticism of the theology of the cross or any theology of the cross, the, the, the number one legitimate criticism is that it becomes a theology of suffering. And uh, that it is not, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of understanding how God shows up. Um, so, the, and the biggest place uh, is the Holocaust as a protest against someone who says suffering is redemptive, all suffering is redemptive. And so my Jewish friends, a lot of them refuse to say that anything good came out of the Holocaust which they, of course, would never call the Holocaust. It's called the Shoah, the destruction. George Floyd uh, was murdered a few miles from where I live. And there's nothing good about his death. It was evil. And he is gone. But God has shown up in, in the wake of that, of his murder, in the wake of other suffering, God has shown up turning human evil, not turning the moment, turning the moment against itself. Um, and you don't, there, there's no pattern to it other than that God does it. I mean, that is, there's no one way that God ends up working in these moments. Um, think about the symbolic things that are going on in our culture right now about racism. In a short amount of time, like three weeks, um, Mississippi finally removed the Confederate, is removing the Confederate flag from their state flag. And NASCAR outlawed it. And now the Washington football team um, is going to change their name. This is the old joke. I don't know if uh, the Washington football team is, they're so worried about negative connotations that they're going to change their name to um, the Richmond football team. Just an anti-government joke, sorry. But no, and and the Cleveland baseball team is going to. I mean, these symbolic and those symbolic things will show up then also in much more concrete action. But fast, those things have happened in this moment, and I discern the movement of God's redemptive, liberating action in that. I could be wrong. But, you know, the New Testament talks about discerning the spirit. Mm. And I think that's what that means is where do you see God actually doing? In the Old Testament, God promises, I set the prisoners free. I lift up the lowly. I bring the mighty down. This is who God is. Uh, Mary sings that same motif in the Magnificat. And so what we're asked to do is look around. Where do you see that happening? I see it happening in those ways in our culture. I might be wrong. But I, that's what I'm 
thinking right now. Mm. There have been some questions raised, and I've wondered about this myself, um, how we can, on the one hand, turn from our fear of death and kind of trying to banish death, not seeing God anywhere in loss or in change or in death, um, not fetishizing it, um, but also having some element of like proactive stance against death, especially the deaths that um, that are violent, that are meaningless, that are evil. Um, that there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to wait for to say, well, God is in the um, God is in everything that happens after. There's also a part of me that says God is God is in the prevention. <laughs> God mm-hmm. is in the folk who are on the street and in the legislative halls. Mm-hmm. And, and like I was just on a call earlier today with someone who spent years on a police force and he's Episcopalian. And he just like he managed to get in touch with me and he wanted to talk about. It. He's like, so what what do I do? What is my call? Um, God to me is also in him figuring out how to stop his own police, you know, kind of comrades and others from perpetrating this evil. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I just, I, there's a part of me that wants to locate, like God is in so many of these places, but one of the things is that God is also in our resistance. Absolutely. I mean, that's why there's, there isn't one pattern for God's yeah. action other than Theodos Cross is a, a way of understanding where we can expect God to show up. Like if so, the best heresies are seventy percent true. Correct. I mean that is. <laughs> right. I mean a heresy that's obviously false. That's got no power, right? It's the ones that are so almost true, right? Th- that they can get a lot of people on board the, the wrong train. And so take the prosperity gospel, which is a heresy, but it's built on the truth that God wants all people to experience abundance. That's absolutely true, I believe. God wants all people to experience abundance. But then, so then the question is how? And here's a formula, right? You give to me as the pastor, I will anoint it, God will return, and it's a you know theological Ponzi scheme, I think. And then there's enough people that enter into it that then experience prosperity for some other reason that then can testify, I did this cause and effect, right? Um, my, uh, I have, I'm one of 36 first cousins on my mom's side. The most financially successful of all of us, I won't say his name, but he once said to me, um, when the prayer of Jabez came out, you remember that? He owns a business, does very well. He said, yeah, I prayed that prayer for a month and I had the worst um, month of business in my history. So I quit praying it and the business came back and he laughed. Well, okay, I would argue it had nothing to do with that and he would too. But this point, it right, is if enough people try some pattern and then experience random success, enough of them will that they can then give these testimonies, right? So heresies are built on these great, um, things that are almost true. Mm-hmm. So it is true. So I point out that 
So what the happens in that prosperity that gospel then says, here's the pattern. Um, we have to resist doing that with any one way of understanding God's redemptive right. um, and liberating actions. The Bible's vision of death, especially St. Paul's vision of death, is that it is the final enemy. I mean, look, especially in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of that long chapter about where Paul says, you know, uh, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Paul, Paul sees death not as an event that happens at the end of everyone's, every living organism's life cycle, but an enemy that is an actual power, spiritual power defying God's will. And he says, um, it's already, it's, its fangs have already been pulled, right? Um, it is no longer powerful. Um, that's very different view of death than uh, my favorite Disney film, which talks about the circle of life, right? <laughs> uh, to see death as a spiritual enemy defying God's, the triune God's loving will mm. is different than the circle of life. Mm. Mm. And God has already defeated death, says Paul. The sting of death is lost. Um, one of the threads of discussion in the chat was really around how do you discern God's presence amidst suffering? And Rolf, we want to ask you, how do you as a, as a church leader help people actually do that discernment? How do you discern and how do you help people learn how to discern God's presence amidst suffering? I actually think the most important thing is simply to try. And you will, you will be wrong. You will discern, we will research. Dwight and I uh, suggested to a friend of ours who teaches at Fuller Seminary that he add this sort of piece to his, uh, his work. And he said, well, I don't like to do it because everybody discerns God's movement in like the politics they agree with. And that helped me really think about, well, actually the point is not to be right, but to start looking for God and expecting God to show up. Read 1 Corinthians 2, which is in the Theology of the Cross, we, most of us read 1 Corinthians 1 and then 3. But in chapter 2, Paul really talks about trying to discern the spirit and spiritual discernment. And he kind of says, um, you know, uh, he, if we were able to do it, we wouldn't have, the world wouldn't have crucified Jesus. So, you know, we know that we're gonna get it wrong, but I think the key for me is just start trying. Cause it changes your imagination that um, away from God, just being an idea we believe in and rather God is a reality that is holding creation together and transforming it into new creation. Stephanie, did you have different thought? Um, no, but I wondered, I wondered about Dwight. What's, what's the takeaway for you? So Rolf, I, I'm just really haunted by that image uh, in the story that you shared of um, when you were at the, the depths of your struggle with cancer that that, that meal that, that you shared with that family friend and the Eucharistic element of it. And, um, and how, do we, how do we join others to break bread and to lift up hearts in those moments 
And how do our churches be the kinds of churches dispersed and scattered, even in this wilderness time where, you know, we can join our neighbors in their depths of suffering and lift up hearts, even as the breaking bread might look different than we're used to. So that's a beautiful image that I'll take away. I was just going to say, I think an image that I'm going to take away is, and I didn't talk about this much during the session, but um, um, there's a there's actually a jar of water behind me that's from the Atlantic Ocean on the side of Ghana. And um, I was there a few years ago, and it's right outside um, Cape Coast Castle, which was one of the main launch points for ships um, of captured Africans bound for the Americas. And um, when I think about death and how people come through those experiences of death and loss and abject horror and tragedy, I feel like a, a part of what I read in that is that um, like, I almost feel like they are, they are in me, their voices and their insistence that I never ever see anyone else suffering like that. Um, or if I do, do something. Um, that that's, in a way, it was because of their suffering that that, that is, I think, so strong in me. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a part of what I will take away. So thank you, Rolf, for your presence with us and your wisdom. Thank you all for joining us for this session of Wilderness Time. We look forward to seeing you uh, next week for our final session, final episode, which is going to focus on worship with um, Lydia Buckland and Randy Hollerith. Blessings. Thanks for joining our conversation. If you'd like to engage more, check out video and study options and episode descriptions at wildernesstime.org. We'll be back next week for more A Wilderness Time. God bless you on the journey.